today here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is uh, Mike Roth, and I'm here today with Charles D. Morgan. Uh, Charles is uh, an author. He's written a book called uh, Matters of Life and Data. And uh, I love the subtitle on this, Charles. The remarkable journey of big data of a big data visionary whose work impacted millions, including you. Oh. That's I, I, I love the titles that have a, a little bit of a zing in it. There you go. I, hey, the other subtitle on that, Mike, is things I learned about being an entrepreneur, being an engineer first. So. Okay, and we and we do have a little bit of a, some similar backgrounds. Uh, let me tell everyone about uh, show number two hundred and fifty that's coming up in uh, two weeks on uh, September fourth. We're going to have Ed Kleinman, and uh, he's a, a business coach, uh, and he used to be in the rock and roll business, and he's written a book called A Joint Venture a backstage rock and roll journey. Uh, great book. You can probably pick it up on Amazon on the cover. It's got a picture of an ashtray with a joint smoking in it. A <laughs> uh, great sense of humor it has. Uh, over here at Sandler, uh, next week we have uh, day one of the two-day boot camp. That's going to be on Wednesday, August uh, 26th. And the day two is on uh, September 23rd. Uh, and that's where we're going to take you through the foundations of Sandler in a short two-day program spaced about a month apart. Uh, uh, we have another big program coming up on September 30th. This is a uh, one-day program on the Sandler Enterprise System. It's called Win Business with the Sandler Enterprise System. Uh, it's intera- an interactive enterprise boot camp. Uh, We're going to have enough time to take you through the six new uh, stages of Sandler Enterprise Selling and the 13 tools. Uh, This will be the first time we've run that program as a full day here in Cincinnati. For those of you who are President's Club members and want the the two-hour mini-abbreviated version, that's on Monday morning, September uh, 21st from 8 to 10 a.m., and in two hours, you can't cover the same material you, you can in eight. If you want to register for either one of those two programs, you need to contact Brittany at 513-753-9400, extension 102. 
uh, both of those programs will probably sell out. Okay. Now, let me tell the, tell the folks a little bit about you, Charles. Uh, Charles uh, is currently the CEO of First Orion Corporation, a privately held company that markets and develops uh, Star, Privacy Star, an application that helps mobile phone users uh, protect their privacy. Uh, coincidentally, before the show, I did download your application to see how it worked. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've been getting calls from places I don't want to get calls. <laughs> well, you, must have an, you must have an Android phone then. Uh, yes, I do have an Android phone. Yeah, yeah. You don't have an application for, for the well, other Well, you know, you can't, you can't put an application like that on an iPhone because old Steve Jobs didn't want anybody messing with the call flows on his iPhone. So the uh, Privacy Star application will not be able to function as an app. We, out, however, right now are talking to all the, not only talking, we actually have in demonstration in the network applications that do everything that, and more, by far more than the application that you see there. So. No, that's good. I, I, I it's going to be fun. We're we're working with uh, uh, all the big guys right now, particularly pretty far along with AT and T. So it's going to be great. Yeah. You got to get them with Verizon. I'd I'd love to be able to block all calls from uh, <sighs> Princeton, Missouri. <laughs> you know, a lot of people want it. Well, they want to block the scammers in certain classes of. People bugging me there, so yeah. Right, right. And, and during today's show, if a, if a caller comes in from uh, uh, Florida or Santa Monica, California, you know, they're, they're not going to get on the air. Uh, Charles has agreed to uh, take callers' questions. As sure. usual, the call-in number is 646-595-4916. We'll be able to screen those calls during the uh, commercial breaks. Uh, Charles... Uh, like I said, has just published his book, which is his memoirs of his life, uh, remarkable journey of a big data visionary whose work impacted millions. Uh, and uh, he's had experience in serving on the boards and, and as CEO of Axiom Corporation, uh, an information services company. Uh, and you served the CEO there uh, for a lot of years from 1972 right. to 2008. We'll have to talk about that. Uh, that's, it's an international, uh, company that generated $1.4 million in annual revenue. Billion, York, billion, billion. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I read that wrong. Yeah. Uh, uh, New York times called Axiom a top performer in the late nineties. Uh, and, uh, working mom called it one of the best places to work at the time. Uh, Charles Morgan has served in various, uh, leadership roles with the direct marketing association, DMA including board chairman. Uh, Morgan was uh, employed by IBM as a system engineer. He holds an electrical engineering degree from uh, University of Arkansas. Uh, been on various boards and uh, similarity, Charles. Uh, I also worked for IBM for a year. Really? Uh, right. I, also, I spent five years on the other side of the fence working at the Burroughs Corporation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, could... Uh, commiserate with some of your experiences at IBM. I'm sure, I'm sure. 
And uh, Charles has been a lifelong lover of auto racing, participating both as an amateur and a professional circuit. Uh, he's bit, built his own uh, race car and competed against the world's best. He's driven in, driven to 19 professional victories. Uh, he and his wife, Susie, a former Miss Arkansas, USA, live in Little Rock. Uh, they have three children and seven grandchildren. So I wish we would have knew this interview because uh, about a year ago, I was spent a, a couple of days in Little Rock. Oh, you did? Really? Yeah, yeah. Nice I went place, through, actually. So is Cincinnati, yeah. really. Yeah. Well, it's a, well Cincinnati is, is like I like to call it, and people won't call in about this. It's, just, it's 200 small towns masquerading as a city. <laughs> separated by a river that's about 350 miles wide. Because uh, it's either the uh, north end of the south or the south end of the north, depending on which side of the river you're on. <laughs> oh. It's a funny place. Um, I guess the, we went through the Clinton Library in Little, Little Rock, which I thought was I live within uh, a quarter mile of the Clinton Library at River Market Tower, which is right next to actually the exit building. But if you're you know, going into the down to Clinton Boulevard, yeah, you go yeah. within a block. You go within a block of my place, and we're only a quarter mile from the uh, Clinton Library. So I get to I get to look out at it all the time. Matter of fact, yeah. Bill Clinton's apartment I can see clearly from my window. So if he's in okay. town, I know the lights are on over there. So. <laughs> Okay. That's uh, trivia. That's trivia for you, okay? Right, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, the words big data uh, mean a lot or a little bit to people depending upon where they're coming from. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking to people uh, through the years, and we called it uh, data warehousing. Right. Uh, what, uh, what, what made you get into that business? Well, we got into that business as a result of being in the really in the direct marketing business. Our company was founded around 1970, and I joined it in '72. Uh, Mike, we kind of searched for a, a identity for a while. Here we are, stuck down in Arkansas. I left IBM with this great vision that I would build a computer services company with mm-hmm. some of my friends and talented people, but computer services in in uh, Arkansas is not a way to get rich in a hurry. As a matter of fact, it's a way to starve. So we searched about for a strategy that would use our computer expertise that we could apply towards some big problems. And the result of that soul searching, if you will, was we built some uh, large list processing applications and actually did some work. I jokingly say that the first one of the first big data projects in the United States was actually conducted by the AFL CIO. People look at me like I've lost it, but we had a chance to take all the AFL CIO union members and try to match it with all the voter registration around the country that they could find and match that with all the census data and match that with uh, telephone data and put together a database that they could use to survey and use for get out the vote. Does that sound like something the Democrats are still doing? And it is Mm -hmm. a very effective 
very effectual, I might add. Uh, we did that for them for a while, but it became obvious to me that we that's not, I, I didn't really want to be working with AFL-CIO and COPE for the rest of our life. And I figured we probably couldn't work with anybody else if they knew we were over there <clears throat> working with AFL-CIO. They were not the most trusted guys in the world at that time. With mm-hmm. well, We did help them build some really cool technology, and that gave us the idea that we could build some very sophisticated, large, we obviously didn't call it big data, but large list processing things where we could bring a lot of data together and allow people to use it for analysis and direct marking. And so the next thing I did was go to Washington, D.C. and try to find some customers that we could do that for in the commercial world and was successful in getting a number of uh, business mailers and consumer mailers. Uh, of all things, our very first customer in New York was the American Bible Society. So we got up, we picked up all these interesting opportunities. The and American then we were Bible Society. Yeah, <laughs> that we did. We had the American Bible Society. Why would uh, they buy us? Well, they were they did a direct mark fund direct marketing fundraising all literally all okay. over the world, and okay. so we were building a marketing to market database stuff for them, and uh, in the meantime, we also came upon another opportunity in New York, and then another one, another one, and it was that was in the mid seventies, uh, and by nineteen eighty three. We got our first truly, really big data opportunity with Citibank, and that was kind of the rest was history. That that occurred when Axiom was still relatively small, less than 200 people, and we had probably about 12, 15 million in revenue at that time. And we managed to grow our relationship with Citibank doing credit card pre-approved credit offers and that relationship grew and grew and grew and we built some good technology big data technology but everything was done in those days on tape mike because you there was no disk storage that could possibly hold the scale of data that we had worked with because we were working with credit bureau data bank data consumer and geodemographic data, psychographic data. So the only way we could build these databases was on magnetic tape. And we had sure. s- uh, some of these studies were hundreds of tapes long. So it was huge. I understand. Uh, I, I, I was a Telex computer product selling those t- tape drives. It, yeah, it oh, I, we, we had Telex. <laughs> yeah, we had some of those. Exactly. They, they were real good drives. Anyway, uh, Charles has agreed to take questions. The call-in number again is 646-595-4916. We're going to be taking a a short commercial break here, and we'll be able to screen your calls during the break. Uh, We'll be right back in about two minutes. This is Mike Roth with Sandler Training, finding power and reinforcement. Are you tired of prospects saying, I want to think it over? Are you tired of being an unpaid consultant? Call me at 513-646-6523. On the web at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. 
They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is, their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523, or check our website at rothconsulting.net. Company owners and sales managers, are you tired of cutting your price to get the deal? Wouldn't you like to have a better way? Wouldn't you want to improve your margins? Call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523 to see if there's a better way for you. This is Mike Roth and uh, Charles Morgan. Charles, uh, why don't you tell our listeners how they can uh, get some more information about you and, and the book uh, after the show is over? Well, we have a website, mattersoflifeanddata.com, just as it sounds. It's all one word, so mattersoflifeanddata.com, and my name. And the book is obviously available on Amazon and all the other online booksellers in a few bookstores around the country. So it is available either from them or from the website. You can also contact me via, we have a way to send an email. So I'll get it if uh, it's a question directed to me. So thanks for bringing that up. And uh, let's talk for a couple of minutes about uh, your job at IBM. You were working uh, down there in Alabama. Arkansas. You're, all, you're close. Everybody gets confused. It's like A R A K A L. You know, they, <laughs> okay, it's Arkansas. Down south near, uh, yeah. near where uh, Walmart is. And uh, yeah. one of your commitments was to uh, sell uh, Sam Walton at a, a Walmart uh, one of their first computer systems. Why don't you tell our listeners what happened? Well, it was definitely their very first computer system because Walmart was just barely uh, getting going. They had a total, I think, of four stores open and three were in the process of being opened or built. And Sam had a vision that he would be able to do a better job of managing inventory in turns if he could get sales data. Uh, every day about the previous day's sales. That way it would help him know what to order, reduce out of stocks and so forth. So he was determined to have a computer. He knew nothing. I mean, Sam knew nothing about computers, but he had some really smart guys working with him. Mm -hmm. And the day I was actually a systems engineer. My job was not to make the primary sales presentation, but I would be the guy that went along with the salesman to answer questions and give him moral support. Or if he had flip charts, maybe I flipped the flip charts, whatever. But in this case, the head sales guy from uh, the Northwest Arkansas area, obviously where Bentonville is, there was only one salesman. There was only one systems engineer, and that was me. The salesman, a guy named Jim Heffley, had to leave town on an emergency as a result of being offered a promotion to data processing division, IBM White Plains headquarters. And so he dropped everything 
and zoomed out of town to White Plains and said, here are your flip charts. Here's some of my notes, and here's what you tell them, and here's where you go. Of course, I had been to Walmart with him several occasions, and I'd actually met Sam before, so they weren't strangers to me. So I proceeded to, at the appointed time to go up to the boardroom of the Bentonville Bank, and there was his whole top management team there, about seven of them, six or seven of them. And there was me walling up there with my flip chart stand, and I proceeded to do the very best job I could impersonating a salesman. And we got all the way through it, and I got a lot of questions, but Sam sat there stonily. He made not a sound, a word, other than when he first said hello when I got there. The rest of the time he sat there without saying a word. I flipped the last chart. And it said, and here is your total monthly cost. Mm -hmm. Sam said, son, son, you know, Walmart does not pay retail for anything. As I look at that price, I calculate that you can come down 15% on that price and still make a fair profit. So when you bring back that presentation, 15% less money per month, then we will buy it. Well, of course, IBM didn't discount in those days for General Motors or AT&T or anybody else. Yeah, a set of but, you know, Mike, being a clever salesman, you went back and you you sold hardware and equipment for mm -hmm. You'd take, you know, you'd, you'd put a little bit slower tape drive. You would put a little bit less equipment and function there and the first thing you knew you had 15 percent off the price sam mm -hmm. didn't know a fast printer from a slow printer so and we went back with a slower printer and a few other features removed and met his price target and he was very happy and bought the computer yeah so, it was that really was kind of a and then of course that was just the beginning of the story now they have more computers in the federal government up there so well that that's one of their competitive advantages it is i i you know i go you on had, and on walmart is a tech company yeah and you had a, a competitive advantage of being only one of you versus seven of them that's right <laughs> i did i always I, tell my people you know in sales training we uh we we, we want to go with less people or equal number of people than, than the other guy has. So if they had seven, you were one, you had a big advantage. I did. I did. I absolutely did. They didn't have anybody to play off on. You know, it was me against them. Right, uh, right. And then when they, and they all the, wanted it, they knew they had to have it. It was critical to their business plan. So they bought it. And I, unfortunately, for the uh, associate of mine, about that time, we got a second IBM systems engineer up there. Uh, who later went to work for me and I, it, at uh, Axiom. And I said, Roger, here, here's your first account. You got to make this slow computer with not enough memory on it work at Walmart. <laughs> and, and you're going to have, and we have an unsupported uh, paper tape reader. You have to write the uh, support for the LCS support for this paper. So poor Roger had to, you know, had to, had to write the, the the support for this thing and make it work with not enough memory, but he did, and it did, and the rest is history. So, well, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a good story. Uh, let's uh, 
talk for a minute about, you know, we, we got about four or five minutes here. Uh, talk about what happened after 9-11 and, and how your, you and your company got involved with the federal government to figure out what was really happening. Of course, that was in 2001. And by that time, we had very large server-based Oracle databases that we were running for a dozen of the large banks, uh, General Motors, Sears, Federated Department Stores, and and other uh, retailers and other industries. And of course, the amount of data we housed. By, by the way, I I will I want to digress here just for a minute because it's really relevant to this. I was talking yesterday to the Chief Privacy Officer of Axiom, who's the one I I. Uh, appointed 1991, and mm-hmm. her name is Jennifer, and she's in, in the book. Uh, <clears throat> Jennifer said that she was being with Chief Privacy Officer at Citibank the other day, and the Chief Privacy Officer at Citibank said to Jennifer, it's a good thing we trust your company, Axiom, because you have probably five times more data about our customers than we do on our own computers. And the reason for that is there are a bunch of restrictions, laws and restrictions that say what kind of data that Citibank can house inside their company, but there are no such restrictions at Axiom for a pre-approved credit offers. The point mm-hmm. here is we had, even in, in 2001, enormous amounts of data about all the banks we had credit data from all three of the credit bureaus about all the population in the United States. We basically had credit file dumps for five years of history in our data warehouse. And right after 9-11, we had a young man, uh, Jonathan, walked into my office and said, Charles, I think we have found five of the co-conspirators that were just announced. We went, did a database scan on a couple of these databases, and we found Mohammed Atta. We found so and so and so. You know, four other guys, mm-hmm. and we also found some guys they were living with that are not mentioned in any of the FBI uh, releases. And we th- we think the FBI ought to know about these guys. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let's be sure that we know what we're talking about. But we looked at it a little bit more. And the next day, we call the, uh, with advice, uh, we called the FBI to ultimately talk to the Justice Department. We had no less than six of the FBI's, what they call the international terrorists, on site. Uh, I redeployed about 25 people. We took a server that had not been fully deployed and dedicated it to building what we call the bad guy database. And we started pouring data into that, any and everything we felt like could help us search. And the federal government actually supplied us entry and exit data from the Middle Eastern countries for the last five, previous five years. So we had, uh, we had big data searching for the the bad guys, and we found a lot uh, of information. And the FBI later told they could tell us what they did with all of it. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. there were arrests were made, 
and that we might have prevented yet another tragedy that uh, uh, would have occurred if they hadn't figured out all these guys that were associated with uh, Muhammad Atta and his crowd. So it was kind of made you feel good. And, and we got a personal thanks from the attorney general, the head of the FBI, and the vice president of the United States. So you felt like you did something good. Yeah, that's good. And uh, big data does make an impact. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Charles is willing to uh, take callers from the audience, 646-595-4916. We're going to uh, take a short commercial break here and uh, be able to screen the calls. We'll be back in about two minutes. Think about this for a second. You graduate from college and decide on a career in sales. How much of your former... This is Mike Roth. Since Think about this for a second. You graduate from college and decide on a career in sales. How much of your formal education was focused on sales skills? You know the thing you're about to rely on to make a living. Zero. Hi, this is Mike Roth of Roth & Associates, the most experienced sales sales trainer in Cincinnati. Why is selling the only profession that people believe you can just walk in and be successful as long as you have a great personality and a little bit of ambition? No matter how skilled and knowledgeable you are in your field, whether it's finance, technology, or any other, you starve if you can't sell your products or services. For over 15 years, we've been training, coaching, and mentoring business owners and sales professionals who are committed to taking control of their careers. To find out how Sandler Training can make you better, faster, and stronger, register now for our next Lunch and Learn. Call me, Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced sales trainer, at 513-646-6523. Let's talk. 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler Trainer. If you're a salesperson or a company owner, my message is critical for you. Today, I want to talk to you about the real secret of getting out of debt. Earn more money. Most salespeople and owners want to sell more at a higher price with better margins, but don't know how. I've helped hundreds of people and companies grow over 30% per year by making an investment in themselves. Albert Einstein said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I teach my clients new and different strategies, tactics, and behaviors that get dramatic results. I'm not for everyone. I'm tough, expensive, abrasive, and not politically correct. But if you want results, we need to talk. Call me at 513-646-6523. Give me your toughest questions. Then, if you qualify, I'll invite you in for a free meeting. 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, and... Charles Morgan again. Uh, Charles, let's take a, a couple of lighter minutes and talk about your experience as a race car driver. And you built your own race car, too. Tell our audience about that. How would you get involved in racing? You know, I cannot remember what attracted me initially. It was sports car racing, not circle track racing. Uh, I don't didn't do roundy round. I did sports cars. Uh, and I think it really began one day when I got a hold of a road and track magazine, probably about age 10. And I started looking at those British sports cars and those funny Ferraris. And I was like, just completely mesmerized by the, by the concept of having a, a fast road car. And I, I began to get more and more interested until I, when I was in high school, I I managed by the time I was about a senior in high school to 
you know, start going to a lot of car races all over. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, of course, they carried into college around my area. And I went, I think that the thing that absolutely hooked me till I was hopelessly gone was going to the 12 hours of Sebring and seeing all the people and the Ferraris and the, you know, Jaguars and uh, all the cars that were down there and all the famous drivers that were there. Dan Gurney was there and Fangio. And I mean, they had just amazing, amazing people that were uh, at the driving in the event. And I stood at the fence for 12 hours while all my friends got drunk and chased girls around the, you know, the paddock. I was just glued to the fence watching these cars. And I said, I got to do this. And uh, of course, one of the great moments of my life was actually winning that race in class uh, uh, and being named the outstanding driver in uh, the event in a prototype car. So I, I I fell in love with it, and I never expected to do that well with it. But uh, when I was finally able to afford to buy my first car, I had a budget of $10,000 to race my first year. I think wow. I overspent my budget by 2000 and so I spent 12000 I probably entered about, you know, six or eight races. But that was 1978, and I went on from there to continue to grow my involvement every year as I was more successful in business. I could buy bigger and better cars. Mm-hmm. And my lifelong dream had been, as an engineer, to design my own race car. So in the, by the mid night, early nineties, I'm sorry, mid early nineties, I embarked on a process of designing my own tube frame, uh, GT car, which I did. And we won, uh, a big race in, uh, Mossport. It was uh, one of the first time Mossport Canada was one of the, mm-hmm. it was, it was the 100th victory for Oldsmobile. And we beat the factory Oldsmobile team in, uh, they called it GTS category in IMSA where I, IMSA is where I raced from all those years. So I had a very fortunate career. I was able to race with my son and I was able to win both the 24 hours of Daytona uh, and, uh, 12 hours of Sebring uh, more than one time, uh, in class, in category, I almost won overall at, in 97 at Daytona, which would have been my third victory, but I, uh, I'm, we finished second, which was a real disappointment to me, but I was very fortunate. I loved it. I, I liked the engineering as much as I liked the driving. Driving was a trip, uh, I wish I wasn't so old and blind now that I'd still be doing it. But mm-hmm. I retired in 1997 and then really didn't quit till 2011. So again, right. I, yeah, I couldn't give it up. So Yeah, it gets into your blood. We, uh, we actually sure. have a client, who, uh, Sloan Henderson, who's uh, been driving some NASCAR events. Yeah. And, uh, the last car that she had to pay for herself was like $350,000 to... To run in the Daytona 400, and uh, <laughs> she was on the Kozlowski team, and she, he yeah. told her to run next to the wall, and she's running in the third row next to the wall. And the guy in the first row, 
hit the infield, bounced back right in front of her. He, she T-boned him. Oh. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think there's any sense. She's still looking for a sponsor if you're looking for, for something. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's pretty damn good. Uh, yeah, race, race, car racing is a wonderful way to make small fortune if you've got a large one. That's the that's what, that's what they say. That's like like yeah. being a Hollywood producer. How do you, how do you become a millionaire as a Hollywood producer? Start with fifteen. Yeah, that's right. exactly. Good line. I hadn't used that one before, but yeah, yeah uh, it, it, it's a it's a fun sport. I've done some uh, amateur driving uh, of my cars on the tracks. Uh, actually, time trials for the Mercedes Benz. Oh yeah, he's happy. Uh, Let's uh, let's have you talk for a minute about uh, the time you back in '76, where you, you were running a company and you couldn't make payroll. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Well, Mike, you know when I joined uh, Axiom in '72, uh, and I alluded to this in some of our comments, I really didn't know anything about running a company. I was I was winging it. My friend was also was helping me co-manage it in 72. He was also an engineer. He had no management experience. We both uh, worked at IBM, but neither one said every, every man by workforce. And all of a sudden, you know, I joined the company in 72, and then my associate, Alex Dietz, uh, went to Saudi Arabia, which is totally not a story. We'll tell that one another time, to open up a operation there. So I'm with 25 employees, and, uh, I only owned about, uh, uh, at that time, I think I owned about 30% of the company. And mm-hmm. we couldn't make the payroll. And our the guys that owned the majority of the company, they were in worse financial shape than our company was. And so we were kind of with a, between a rock and a hard place. I knew exactly how much revenue I could depend on. It wasn't enough to do everything I needed to do pay people, pay for pay IBM for the computers and rent and interest to the bank for the uh, stuff that we had had bought. So we were completely out of money, uh, no real assets to borrow against, own, own virtually nothing. So I went to my top team and said, you know, we've just gotten this. This is when I'd been starting to go to New York, and we had gotten uh, this, uh, the second big account right after the American Bible side of direct media. And I knew that we already had agreed on the price for the work. It was going to be recurring revenue, and it was going to generate enough revenue as soon as we got it operational to put us well into the black. But it was, yeah. We had we had to develop uh, some very amazing technology to do it. We had to connect our computer to a terminal in New York, and we had to create a a language and literally an SQL like language that allow those people to access their data and create mailing list selections. It's called our mm-hmm. list order fulfillment system, and I knew that. We had something really cool, and it was going to make us a lot of money, but I had to get it built first, and mm-hmm. we could not get the 
client, direct media, to really pay us anything. They finally gave us a little bit of money. I think they felt sorry for us. But uh, I went to the team and said, guys, uh, we can't make the payroll. I can't I can't pay you guys. Uh, the only way I know to make it between this was about September and March or April when we're going to start hopefully generating revenue is to put you guys on half salary. And, and back in those days, those people were not making a lot of money at all. Mm-hmm. And, sure. Uh, this is what, 1976? Yeah, at least several of them had, you know, kids, at, you know, about half of them had kids at home. And I look at me like, how do you expect for me to pay my bills? I said, well, I, I don't know. We, I can't pay you. you know, but so everybody want to have salary, me included, for six months. And I know some of them had to go to the bank, take out temporary loans. Uh, others uh, somehow or other managed to have enough savings to get through those six months, depleting their savings. But they all stayed, not single one of them quit. And I promised them that I would, for every dollar they gave up, I'd give them two back. And mm. I did. And so they got all their money back and then some. Uh, later, I had to do it, but not quite so draconian manner. But we we had to do that twice during the developing history of the company. But it's it was all it was all for the good in the end because it built a tremendously strong team-based spirit in the company. A lot of trust. When you tell people you're going to do something and you do it, uh, then that makes a big difference. And the next time. While it might be painful, people will believe that you'll do what you say you'll do. So we built a a strong team. Uh, We managed to begin to grow the business. That was in 76. And we continued to get other New York-based business primarily until we landed the Citibank account in 83. And then by then, we were off to the races. Sounds fantastic. Again, uh, Charles has agreed to take questions from our audience. You can call in on 646-595-4916. And uh, when we come back from this next commercial break, we're going to be talking about uh, managing leadership and how do you hire winners. Uh, Let's listen to a Sandler rule. Let's listen to Sandler rule number 38. Al Strauss with Sandler Training. Talk to you about rule number 38. The problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. When people have heard this rule and thought about it a bit, if they've been in sales for more than a few months, they almost always say, well, that's obvious. I've had lots and lots of prospects that told me what they wanted. I showed them what they wanted and they didn't buy it. So it seems that it would be obvious. The problem is most folks don't understand it and you get in the middle of the conversation and here's a prospect who's interested in something, you've got the something and you just show up. And what you really need to learn how to do is ask a bunch more questions because frankly, in most cases, the prospect doesn't even understand what the real problem is. And so if you ask three or four more questions about what they claim they need or are looking for or want, you're going to discover that it morphs 
It changes sometimes dramatically. What they end up needing is perhaps even diametrically opposed to what they originally said they were looking for. So ask the questions, don't take the first thing they give you, dive down into the real issues, and you're going to have yourself a much better day selling to this prospect. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Charles D. Morgan. Uh, Charles, uh, here at Sandler, uh, we have a philosophy of uh, hiring the right people. In fact, uh, tilting the scales so that we only hire people who will succeed as opposed to people who should succeed. Uh, why don't you uh, tell our listening audience a little bit about your philosophy as a CEO entrepreneur on hiring and firing people? Well, hiring the right people was my first uh, and almost only business philosophy early on as a obs observation of the success of IBM. And I looked at IBM versus many, I don't even want to say this because uh, uh, you know, I know you work for a competitor, but then you did work for IBM, so it's okay. Um, I don't because of the fence, unbelievably. <laughs> <laughs> you hopped over the fence. But uh, I looked at the quality of people generally in IBM, and I felt like they were more outstanding in terms of ability uh, than our competitors seemed to do a better job, even though many of them had better technology often than, than IBM did in the broadest sense that we looked at service, the broad product line, software, everything else, IBM was better. And I said, there's got to be something about this people thing. And I went to an event in Atlanta one time. It was a national awards program. And the whole screen, which was kind of like a movie theater, the whole screen and the screen said, the difference is you. And I had this crazy epiphany, which shouldn't even, by that time should have been an epiphany, but it was that IBM success was all about the people it hired. That was just, it just hit me as the success of that business. And then I began to think about Walmart and what I'd been very impressed in the year or so before with Walmart and how I felt like they were doing. And I was just, he had a CFO who was a, uh, uh, a star, and he had some other marketing, merchandising people he'd hired from all over the country. Absolutely outstanding people. And then I looked at some of the companies that I thought were just barely struggling, and, and the, they had people that did, weren't, didn't seem to be very strong, didn't get very much done effectively with, with us trying to work with them. And so I said, the one thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to hire the very, very best people when I get involved in, in my business. And that was my, really my first principal business was hire good people. Uh, well, how did I you was, pick people? Well, I picked them by looking at what they had accomplished. Now we, uh, you know, when we were hiring young people, we always gave like IBM did in those days, programmer aptitude tests. They were actually pretty good at predicting, but I looked, I like to look at uh, what people did in school, I looked at their success in school and in grades. I looked at the well-rounded person that seemed to have outside activities and not just, you know, one thing they were focused on. Uh, and I 
I usually, when I do an interview, I try to put the person at ease and just talk to them like we're talking about Mm -hmm. things. And strangely enough, when you spend enough time with people, things come out. They just come out. And they open up and you get the opinions and you talk to them about I always ask questions when I'm doing it. I say, what do you like to do? Let's talk about work. What do you like to do? What really gets you excited? If you know you're going to do something today, what is it? Is it going water skiing? Is it working on a programming project? Or is it going to give a speech to run? What do you really get excited about doing? Going on a trip. I don't know. And people start talking about, oh, I like this. And then the other thing I do Mike, as I say, what do you want to do? What do you want to be doing in 10 years? Describe the day, your day in 10 years. What is your job? And that's one of the reasons I left IBM, by the way, is I couldn't imagine myself, you know, promoting up through the ranks and going from uh, Little Rock to or Fayetteville to New Orleans to, you know, Cincinnati, which is just exactly what IBM used to do in those days, all over the place. So mm-hmm. I, I try to I try to really understand the person, and then I also rely on the people that have worked with that person, uh, you know, that that know them, and almost always, if there are warning signs, if you listen carefully, some of the worst mistakes I've ever made on hiring people is I didn't listen, Mike. I didn't listen. They told me that this person was going to be a problem, but I did not. I I was so in to say, oh, this is a great guy. I love him, you know, him or her. Really good person. And you have somebody describe person, I think, of several right off the top of my head that fit in that category, but I didn't listen. I didn't realize okay. that... that uh, they were telling me this person is, you know, hard to work, difficult to work with. It's their way or the highway. They're they're obstructionist. You know, it's just funny how you you know you got to listen. People are not being ugly. They're just saying they will say things like, "Oh, they're very detail oriented. They're sticklers for the, you know, getting stuff right." And you know, it's you just sometimes don't hear those things. But anyhow, I I think having other people talk to people, talking to people if uh been around them and worked with them is very important uh, the last you know i always like to talk to somebody who's worked uh that has that person who's worked for who's worked side by side with them and worked under them those three things i think are very important to get those perspectives so so it's a 360 type of uh yes absolutely. Uh, make, absolutely. A, make a lot of sense uh you know, we've, we found that telling people that uh, we're going to do those kinds of uh, reference checks and they have to set them up with the people that we're going to be talking yeah. to uh, cause all of the C players and oh. almost all of the A player, B players to drop out of the interview process because they don't want us talking to the people that they worked for. Yeah. The people who worked for him, them. Yeah. The A That's players right. have no problem. Uh, no, that's a, yeah, here, here, all these guys here, talk to them. I mean, I actually, actually, you're right. You could actually almost say here, give me all the people that you've worked around that, you know, worked on an equal level with them, other manager, the people that you've worked with and some people work for and some people that work for you. And then I say, oh, here, uh, you know, here, 10, and you're right. The D guy is going to say, well, uh, 
I don't know where it flies Morgan anymore. You know, it's funny. I I went on LinkedIn. We're a big believer in LinkedIn over here at Sandler. Uh, they're both clients and, and we use their system, but the, uh, I went on to LinkedIn and attempted to find the guy that I worked for when I was back at Telex, uh, 30 years ago, son of a gun. I found him even though he was yeah. retired. <laughs> hey, uh, I guess that's another example. I, li- of- I, li- I listened. I actually got interviewed yesterday by a guy who's a writer at LinkedIn pulse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, it's a, it's an extremely valuable tool. It's far from perfect, yeah. but it is collecting big data. Lots of data, for sure. Now and, you said and, hiring and firing. Right. It tells me how you make a decision to fire somebody. I I don't think any of us are very good at it. I always expect the best from people, and once I hire them, I want to give them every chance. Uh, what I have uh, experienced is ninety five percent of the time. My first impression that I ought to fire this guy is the right one. That mm-hmm. I'm going to give him, him or her, I'll say him, him or her, another chance, and maybe we say found the right job. I can remember one guy that we had working for our company was a, a lawyer, uh, and he was not very good lawyer, but we tried to, you know, he said, well, he would really like to work in one of the operating groups, and we put him in that. That didn't work out, and I think he had we. While we couldn't ever bring, he was such a nice guy. Nobody could bring themselves to firing him, but he never ever succeeded in any job. He just had a lot of issues, and I, you just, you know, I shouldn't even say his name is Fred. Fred was just a wonderful, wonderful guy that I still would say I like, but he just didn't get his. He just couldn't get things done and, and people got very frustrated working around him because he didn't deliver oh, he didn't. On oh you I, years you know. years mike it was yeah, awful sure. oh yeah and i, I but he's just such a nice guy you won't make you won't pull the trigger on him and I, I think since we fired him i think he's not done all that well either but anyhow uh i you i know. just suggest that that you, you, you need to live with your earliest instincts on things like that. Almost always when you fire somebody, they're not feeling very good about what they're doing. You aren't feeling very good about what they're doing. People working around them aren't feeling very good. And if you can't talk to people, now I will, I want to say that if there are correctable faults, then, and people are smart. Uh, I, I've worked with two or three really smart guys and I've sit them down and say, listen, if you don't fix these two or three things, you are going to get fired. You understand me? The people that work for you do not like the way you treat them. And I had a guy that ran a pretty good sized operation in, in, in Chicago for me. And I brought him down to Arkansas and I said, you know, I'm looking at your employee satisfaction survey. It's awful. All the comments about you are awful. And if you don't fix that, then you're done around here. You got it? Mm-hmm. Boy, you ought to see you ought to see his employee survey the next year, one of the best in the company. He had pizza lunches and he he communicated with his guys. He learned from that experience and it made him, you know, a much better leader. 
but I literally brought him down with my finger in his face and I'm going to fire you if you don't fix it. It's just unacceptable. You're a smart guy, but you're screwing up right and left. And by golly, he fixed it and, and had a great survey. And that's happened in a couple of couple of cases. So you got to give a guy a chance. You got to tell them what they're doing. If they don't do it, then just trying to put them in another job is not going to fix it. Yeah, we've, we've fixed people in different ways. And sometimes it's putting them in a job where they have better uh, behaviors and habits and competencies than the position that they're currently in. And I actually agree with that. I, if you look at somebody and say, this guy does not work with his peers very well, but he's enormously talented and put them in a job where they don't have as many peers to interact with. Uh, I've, I've done that and done it by fact, very successfully also. So I, I, I left that. I totally agree with that. If I got, if a wrong person, wrong place, uh, maybe shame on you for putting them there and not fixing it. Right. Uh, Charles, we're just about out of time. I'm going to uh, thank you for uh, being on the show today. And uh, I'm going to be sending off to you a co copy of one of the new Sandler books on transforming leaders, the Sandler way. I, I know you'll get a great kick out of it. And great. Uh, the prefix again, Charles, thanks for being part of the thank show. You very much. Thank you. And, uh, Scott, why don't you take it away to close us out? Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9402.